Hello, and welcome to RD and the Inbetweens. I'm your host, Kelly Priest, and every fortnight I talk to a different guest about researchers, development, and everything in between. and welcome to the latest episode of RD and the Inbetweens. This episode comes to you a little late due to an incident with a microphone cable that sadly is no more. Um, But I'm really delighted for the first time to bring you a guest host for RD and the Inbetweens. So this week, Dr Edward Mills, who has been a frequent guest on the podcast, is taking over and bringing us an episode all about preparing for your Viva. So Edward is working with me to develop some online resources and training about preparing for your Viva and that includes a series of podcasts with different academics and examiners and researchers all about the process. So this is the first of a new series and over to you Edward. Hello. As Kelly said in her intro, uh, my name is Edward, I am a postdoc in modern languages, and this episode of RD and the Inbetweens comes to you courtesy of John Blount, uh, Director of Postgraduate Researchers in CLES, the College of Life and Environmental Sciences here at the University of Exeter. It's part of a series of interviews that I'm doing uh, with DPGRs and examiners from around the university as part of the preparation for a new suite of resources on preparing for your Viva. And John has very kindly agreed that we can use the long-form version of our discussion uh, as part of this podcast series. So I started by asking John, as you can probably imagine, whether he'd be willing to introduce himself. Um, yeah, so, sure. So I'm, I'm John Blount, as you said. I'm a professor of animal ecophysiology, so my um, sort of parent discipline is biosciences. Um, but in CLES, I oversee, in addition to biosciences, geography, sport and health sciences and psychology as well, including clinical psychology. So it's quite a diverse um, range of subject areas and quite a large college. We've got about 575 students, something of that in that order. You mentioned the diverse college that you have in CLES, and I was really interested to hear about this during the pre-interview chat that we had, um, in that you've got uh, researchers from... Uh, areas of, say, human geography, who might be quite close to some of the work that we do in humanities and social sciences. But then you also have, of course, a lot of uh, researchers who are nearer towards the what you might call the hard sciences end in class. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, I mean, most of most of the uh, theses that are examined in our in in this college would be, I guess, what you would call STEM related. But um, as you say, towards the sort of um, human geography end of the geography spectrum, we do see uh, PhDs that can be examined, including uh, elements of performing arts, for example. So, you know, a very diverse range of presentations. Yes, um, and certainly we're hoping there'll be material in this discussion that will be useful to people in HASS, people in STEM, and everything in between. I was wondering if we could start just with me asking when you tend to advise uh, PhD students to start thinking about the VIVA as a moment in their course of study. I think this is a conversation that will naturally emerge in the final, you know, the final year, let's say. Um, it should be it should be around the time when you're um, getting deep into writing up and, and thinking about the kind of literature that you should be citing to properly represent the field 
of work that you're in. I mean, the, the, the choice of examiners will be strongly informed by the experience of your supervisory team. And I think it's important, you know, it's usually the case that students um, are aware of who their examiners are going to be at some point during the latter months when they're finishing up the write-up stage. And, and, it, and, it, and it's useful at that stage to kind of, you know, know your audience really, to think about who's going to be reading this and what literature are they going to be familiar with, um, you know, making sure that you properly represent their own research, perhaps not just the broader field of literature that they will be uh, most knowledgeable about. So as a sort of follow-up to that then, um, just to sort of try and demystify the process a bit, could I ask what you as an examiner uh, will do when you're um, given a thesis or approached about it? Presumably you're approached by one of the supervisors first to ask if it's uh, an area you'd be willing to examine in? Yeah, you, um, you're typically you'd be approached by the primary supervisor who would, um, you know, would tell you roughly what the subject area is and what the, how many chapters there are and roughly how long the thesis is and what kind of format it's in and so on. And then you decide, you know, whether you're available and able to do it within the time scale that they will um, identify for you. You know, they'll say to you, look, the candidate's looking to submit around so and so and so we you know we'd really like to have this done within two or three months of that date is that possible and um you you agree or you decline depending on, on what, what you know what you've got on your plate at the time and so on um when the thesis arrives to you it will of course come electronically um and it, it should also arrive as hard copy if it doesn't most examiners will request that because it's a lot easier to read a large document as we all know you know in hard copy than on screen um, and most examiners will have a quick flick through the thing when it arrives and just get a sense of the scale of the task ahead of them. You know, how much time do they feel they, they, they will need to set aside to read this ahead of the, the viva or the, the, if there is a viva. Um, and then usually, you know, what most people will do, because we've all got a lot of things going on, it will normally be put to the side until, you know, a week or two before the, um, the date of the exam or the deadline for the submission of the report, mm. if there's not going to be a fiver. Um, and, and then they will, they will intensively read it over a period of whatever's required, you know, two, three days um, as required, and write their, their comments. I, I tend to go through the thesis and um, mark up the hard copy. Um, and then after I've gone through each chapter, I'll then type up my notes and think about which bits of it um, are actually substantive and need to be discussed in a in a viva, or, or would need to be presented to the candidate as a something they should respond to and could potentially require a revision and so on. So, in that sort of uh, post submission pre viva period, how do you typically advise a candidate to prepare for the viva? Okay, so after you submit, obviously there's a great sense of elation that you've sort of crossed the line, and you tend to put the thing in the in in the top drawer and forget about it for a, a few weeks and that's absolutely the right thing to do you know just go away and forget about it and relax and do something else but when it when you when you know the date of your viva i feel it's very important to uh make sure that you read the thesis and um and know its contents well um you know you you can to a greater or lesser extent anticipate the kinds of questions they're going to ask about um, 
each chapter and perhaps overall about how the thesis hangs together as a whole and what it, what is its broader significance. So for each chapter, I would encourage candidates to just read it, um, not immediately before the Viva. I'm not talking about the day before. I'm talking about maybe a week or two before. Read the chapter. Make sure you can or are clear in your own mind what was the overall aim or question that we were setting out to address here. Uh, you know, what were the... What were the major questions and hypotheses that we approached? What were the major findings? And, and how do these findings change the way we think about the original question that we set out to answer at the outset? You know, you, you can you can if you can answer those sorts of questions in relation to each chapter, you're going to do absolutely fine because you're almost certainly going to be asked to explain, you know, what did you do? Why did you do it? What did you find out? Um you want to be, or you want to almost be able to explain the purpose or the you know the outcome of each chapter as if you were writing a lay summary or or as if you were you know explaining to a non-specialist in the kitchen at a party you know what why what do you do why did you do that what did, who cares you know what did you find out and it, in a conversational kind of way you want to be able to give a fairly pithy answer to those sorts of questions because you're almost certainly going to be asked um, and that's it, really. I think preparation uh, is the key. Uh, think about potential weaknesses. It's not your role to um, hide any potential weaknesses that you're aware of. It's okay to be open and talk about them too. Um, the, the examiner's main job is, as I said before, is to make sure that that, that you wrote the thesis. So just make sure that you you do. Um, remember its content, you know, don't put it to one side and then literally don't look at it again for three months and, and go into the room uh, because you're going to be asked detailed questions about its content. And you mentioned this sort of writing of reports that takes place before the Viva. Could you say a bit more about that and about the, the role of the, the different examiners? Because, of course, there will be more than one, uh, right? Yeah, there'll be an external examiner and one or more internal examiners. Um, if, if, for example, a, a member of staff themselves went for a PhD, um, if they didn't have a PhD already, they might do a PhD as part of their work for Exeter. They would then require two internal examiners. But, you know, there are, there are sort of uh, process-related things like that that might determine how many people are in the room. But, you know, there's going to be an internal examiner, at least one of those. There's going to be one external examiner, potentially two external examiners, if the thesis covers a very broad range of expertises that requires a bit more um, input to, to, to examine. And there might be a non-examining independent chair whose role is just to oversee proceedings. They don't they don't read the thesis um, and, and they won't contribute to the conversation other than to chip in and sort of bring things back on course if they feel that, uh, you know, you've overrun the time that's available or something like that. And I think that's actually a requirement, isn't it, with the new virtual vivas in the age of COVID? It is a requirement, yeah, of the online virtual vivas. Mm. Um, it's not a requirement typically unless there's something like, you know, one of the examiners has not examined at the level of the award before. It might require a, a non-examining chair to be present just to oversee oversee proceedings. As I say, their role is just to make sure that the, the regulations are followed, really, and that the candidate has a, you know, a fair crack of the whip to defend their thesis, as we say. And obviously, the first step, I imagine, of defending the thesis um, it comes in the form of the examiners producing these reports on what you as a candidate have written. Could you say a bit more about what goes into these reports at all? 
Yeah, so the, the preliminary reports are um, written independently by the each individual examiner. Um, and they will give an abridged version of their overall comments that they've already written up in note form or in, in, in longer hand, you know, they, they will just give a, a sort of a sense of where they, f of what they feel the likely outcome will be on the basis of the thesis that they've read. You know, they will give a tentative recommendation at the end. I, I think this is, um, I think the, 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 this is worthy of the award uh, of PhD, um, subject to perhaps some revisions in the areas that I've outlined above. That's the kind of the way that that report would typically end. And then, then, then the examiners share those reports with each other, usually the day before the exam, um, just so that they're aware of the gist of what each other's feelings are. It's useful to have that for context. Um, and then, but you wouldn't modify those reports at that stage, even if you identified differences in your views. That's, um, that's quite normal. Um, but then on the, you know, after the, after the Viva has taken place, um, the, the examiners would then get together virtually, you know, in, in, in the current circumstances or physically, they would get together in a room and they would draw up, you know, a report, a joint report where they make their recommendation. This should be awarded, you know, subject to revisions or whatever the mm -hmm. recommendation is. They'll out, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll state what their recommendation is. And then if there are revisions required, they'll list them. That's the, that's the function of the final report. The period, of course, when the examiners are doing this before the Viva itself starts is one of uh, high tension for the student, um, the candidate. I remember it myself very well. Um, what advice do you tend to give to PGRs going into the Viva uh, about nerves and how to handle them? I think I think the first thing to say is, you know, try not to be nervous because you know more about this thing than anyone else does, almost certainly. And and the, the, the primary function of the examiners is just to make sure, you know, to verify that you indeed wrote this thing yourself. You know, this is an independent independent piece of research and you are the author. That's their primary function. So, you know, and of course that, that is almost invariably going to be the case. So, you know, it, you should go into this feeling um, like you're in control, you know, to a, to a greater or lesser extent that, that that you know more about this than anyone else so you shouldn't although it's almost impossible of course not to become anxious ahead of a, a major life event like this the examiners are going to want you to do well and i think it's important that you know that the candidates recognize that a good examiners will um set you at ease when you walk into the room um just by asking you some rather banal questions about what you've been up to since you submitted the thing or um you know, that just conversation starters really to break the ice. They might even give you a sense of the likely outcome before um, the, the Viva proper begins. So everybody wants you to do well and, and, and in an ideal world, you will be um, put at ease relatively quickly after the thing starts. And that's something that's come up a lot actually in the discussions I've had with um, examiners and DPGRs across across colleges that examiners will often give an indication early on of the way the wind is blowing. Obviously that might not always be the case and you might not get this sort of early indication of uh, whether you're going to pass with major corrections, minor corrections, no corrections or so on. If you don't get that, is that necessarily a bad thing from the outset of a viva? It's, it's sometimes quite difficult to give a um, a precise indication because it, it may not be cut and dry whether they will want you to make revisions or not you know some of the some of the items that they've some of the things they've itemized in their 
you know, provisional list of corrections that they they want to discuss with you will end up just being put to one side. Having had a discussion, it's cl- the, the the misunderstanding is cleared up and it doesn't actually require a revision. So, I I think um, I wouldn't be at all concerned if you're not given an indication of the of the likely outcome. It's it's quite often difficult to be definitive before you've actually heard the candidate speak and and Mm. responses to the questions you know so once we're into the meat of the viva if you like past the sort of initial introduction those those early questions is there anything that you as an examiner uh like to see that gives you confidence in the candidate that you're examining confidence that the the candidate knows what they're doing knows what they're talking about I mean, you're, you know, you're as an examiner, you're looking for a thesis, a thesis that's well, well presented and has been proofread. It's, uh, it makes the task of examining so much more enjoyable if, if you feel that the candidate has taken care over the presentation and the, and the proofreading. You know, there's really no excuse for it to be littered with typos, and it sets the, um, the tone. Um, in the in the wrong direction from the outset so because you're creating a great deal more work for the examiners if you haven't had time or bothered to do that work yourself you know similarly you want to see a good um you want to be easy to navigate so you want to see a good context content section so you can find all the different bits easily and cross-reference things when you need to um you want to make sure that the literature is appropriately cited we've touched on that um already and the other thing I suppose to say here is I think it's important to make sure that you deal with all, all the revisions that, that you're given at the end of it. You know, that the final report that you receive at the end of a viva will potentially have a list of things that the examiners want you to correct or amend. And, you know, occasionally candidates don't agree with all of those things um, and and they might then choose to sort of argue the point and it, and I would strongly advise against that because it, it doesn't it just doesn't end well for the candidate because it just it draws out the process and basically the examiners are highly unlikely to um to back down on, a, on an amendment that they've asked for so that's a really interesting point uh just to check are you referring now specifically to amendments that are proposed post viva or to the kind of discussions that you'd have and the propositions made by the examiners during the viva itself no no so in during the discussion i mean it's absolutely fine to sort of argue argue the point and well perhaps not argue but to have have a robust discussion about something if if the examiners ask you to change the way some piece of statistical analysis is done or something and you don't agree then it's it's absolutely your prerogative to point out why you feel that they're wrong Mm -hmm. and they may well be wrong i mean that could be an example of a potential amendment that they then just scrub out off their list because they realize that they misunderstood or something but at the end of the process if there are uh, amendments or corrections requested it will come in the form of a a list and You, you know, you've basically just got to do what you've been asked to do at that stage. There's no point um, arguing. Candidates occasionally will feel that they want to do that, but um, it's a pointless exercise, would be my advice. <laughs> yeah, um, thanks for clarifying that, actually. Um, I think that resonates with a lot of what um, people have heard in has subjects as well about the need to engage in this uh, robust discussion uh, during the Viva itself. On that uh, topic, actually, of a sort of robust discussion, how do you tend to encourage candidates to 
reach that stage. What well, one thing that I've heard before from a lot of people is the value of not getting too defensive in the Viva. Yes, I think you know you've got to rec- you've got to recognise that um, you know exams will vary, and some and, and examiners are just human beings, right? So they they will have different. Uh, demeanors and ways of approaching things and different manners of asking questions and but as a candidate whatever you're presented with you've just got to stay cool and uh, listen to the question carefully and you know above all don't don't uh, don't argue just take your time listen to it if you ask ask for a clarification if you don't understand the question properly once you do understand what they're getting at um you know whatever it is just give a, a a, a calm answer is the, is the best advice really is absolutely no point folding your arms and um arguing so when you say don't argue um it sounds like a kind of a, a demeanor thing almost don't don't snap back just keep your cool if that makes sense very often in in, in the stem subject areas that uh you know there will be multiple ways of doing something and the examiners may have their own particular preference of how something should be done and they may say to you, I think you should do it like this. And it's, it's absolutely fine to um, try to reason with them as to why you feel well, the way you've done it is, is, is an alternative or adequate approach too. And, uh, you know, a good, good examiner, a good board of examiners will accept that. They'd listen to you and accept that. And actually that will sort of bolster their confidence that you are in command of this. And as I said, it is your PhD and you know more about this than anyone else. And in many cases, examiners will simply say that's absolutely fine. And, um, and drop the point you know you will occasionally get situations where an examiner is absolutely adamant that they want something done in a particular way and you very strongly disagree and that's the sort of bit where um the internal examiner's role really comes to the fore there because they ought to be experienced enough to you know recognize a point when you know we've exhausted this now let's move on and and they will potentially intervene and say i think we i think we've covered this now and we'll move on to the end and then you know when you see the report at the end you'll find out what their decision has been as to what they want you to do but that's the point at which you there's no point arguing Mm. just jumping back slightly if that's okay uh, one thing that you mentioned earlier was the importance of signposting and there being a clear structure throughout the thesis and Another thing that came out of our discussion before I hit the big red record button um, was this notion of the results chapter, which sounds in, in some respects like quite a specific uh, STEM thing. Um, for listeners who are in maybe uh, HASS subjects, would you be able to say a little bit more about what you mean by that and how that might apply more generally, this notion of a results chapter? So the, the typical structure of a PhD thesis in, in, in STEM would be an introductory chapter, which might be a sort of a literature review type chapter that, um, you know, uh, sets the research questions in the context of the existing literature and identifies the gaps in knowledge that, that you're going to address. That may or may not be a publishable um, unit, if you like, in its own right. It might end up being a review article in 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 uh, you know, in, in the STEM literature, or it might just serve the purpose of being part of the thesis that sort of bookends the um, results chapters, which are in the middle. So after your introductory general introduction, you would typically then have a series of you know what we call results chapters. So each of those will have its own introduction, methods, results, discussion, reference list, and so on. They may or may not have been um, submitted for publication as uh, you know individual publishable units um, at the point by which you have the viva. 
Um, if they have been published, it's very often the case that you'll just have an interesting chat about the contents of it and what we've found out about it. You know, what was the main question? How did you address it? What were the main findings? How does this change the way we view the world? You know, but they won't nitpick about details of why did you do your analysis in this way? And did you think about doing it in a different way? Because it's already been subject to peer review and and it's published. You know, what's the point of changing a part of a thesis that's already in the um, public domain as a published article? So most examiners won't ask you to revise published chapters. It can happen, but it's it's relatively unusual. They're more likely to spend more time talking about the aspects of the thesis which are potentially publishable, i.e. the results chapters, but which have not yet been submitted for peer review. So they'll be doing the, the job of you know, external peer reviewers at that, at that stage. And, and actually, that conversation that happens in the Viva is really, really helpful for you um, for when you come to write those papers up for publication and submit them, because hopefully with all of that expert opinion you've already had, um, about this piece of work, you, you'll have covered many of the issues that, that other reviewers might might have picked up. And how helpful is it, at least in, in STEM specifically, to compartmentalise in this way? I mean, I'm assuming most reviewers will take it in a relatively chapter-by-chapter-like fashion? They will actually in this subject area, yeah. It's actually, so the most common format for these conversations will be to let's start with chapter one and then two and three and so on. You can you you can approach it as an examiner. Well, it's entirely up to you how you approach it. But you know, with the agreement of all the examiners, you could go at it in a very much wider way and just and just start with the really broad questions about you know what have we learned? How does this? How does this? How do the findings of your thesis change the way we think about the original questions you set out? And then just sort of pick up on individual bits of it as you as you sort of navigate through that conversation and that might be the more appropriate way to do it if for example as exceptionally to be fair but if for example the candidate had already published all of their results chapters in the, the peer reviewed scientific literature then it might be appropriate to have a, a slightly different style of um, conversation in the viva where you just go at it from a much broader perspective i was going to ask actually on that subject would you recommend therefore at least in, in, in STEM subjects, that candidates try and sort of publish as much as possible prior to their PhD, just to give themselves that insurance? I wouldn't say recommend because it, it, it's so project specific. You know, some, some projects, the, the results only come towards the end. It's, it's just a necessary part of it. You know, if you're working on a, a longitudinal study of uh, an, a, a, a mammal in the wild or something, you, you might only get all of your data in the final year and so on. So it's almost impossible to publish as you go. But, you know, in in this subject area, we are we're all assessed, if you like, and our careers are judged on on the um, the numbers and quality of the publications that we produce. And so, you know, all, all supervisors will be encouraging you to look for opportunities to publish as you go. Based on that, then, would publication make you untouchable in a viva on a given chapter, or is that, as I suspect, something of an uh, oversimplification? It's an oversimplification, but um, it's a, you know the, the the role of the examiners is to make sure you have been examined. You know, it'd be remiss of them just to have a, a laid back conversation if you just because you'd published everything. They would be looking to test you on your thoughts about what are the most significant parts of what you've found, and you know why should we care about what you've found, and how could this apply to fields you know outside of your immediate gaze and subject area and so on. I mean, they will 
as experienced academics, they will want to make you feel like you've had an exam, although a constructive and you know enjoyable conversation uh, at that. Just for the final part of our conversation, um, I was wondering if we could look a little bit more at some of the outcomes. We've briefly touched on these already. Um, but just to begin with the, the basic points, am I right in thinking that the standard outcomes of pass with no corrections, with minor corrections, major corrections, that sort of range of outcomes, and there are, of course, other ones alongside that, uh, are broadly consistent in STEM subjects as well as in uh, HASS ones? The, the, the potential outcomes are the same. And at the end of the Viva, the examiners will um, send you out of the room you know, physically or figuratively speaking, if it's a virtual viva, and they'll have a conversation about what their recommendation is going to be. Then they'll call you back in and they'll tell you verbally what the recommendation is. Of course, if it's no corrections, it's just a case of, you know, slapping each other on the back and wishing you well. If it's, um, if the if recommendation is for major or minor corrections, then they'll explain to you why they feel that's justified and what you're required to do for the award. Um, and then you will be sent the written up report once they've conferred and actually got it down in writing. You will be sent that within a few days usually, and you'll be given a period of time in which you need to turn it around and resubmit it. And then once the revisions are received back at the university administrative hub, they will be sent to the uh, internal examiner, uh, whose role is just to go through and check that you've done all that you were asked to do. And, it, and if there's any uncertainty in their mind about that, they will confer with the external examiner but in most cases the external examiner isn't consulted at that point and is it the case in sciences as it is in has subjects that you're not allowed to contact your examiners for further feedback no it's really important that you don't contact the examiners it compromises their their position they won't welcome the approach and it and it contravenes our rules and regs so it potentially would render the examination uh, you know invalid and you'd have to do it again there is, though, the option of going through uh, your supervisor, but that can only happen once, as I understand it. Yeah, I don't know about, actually, I don't know about the frequency of whether once or whatever, but it's um, it, it, it's not generally considered to be a good idea for anyone to confer with the examiners, would be my advice. You can go back to the internal examiner, that would be the, 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 uh, the supervisor could approach the internal examiner and ask for a clarification about the wording of um something that would be okay yeah i think that would be fine once and what does the uh distribution curve if that's the the right term look like what percentage of candidates will get um no minor major corrections and so on um in our college minor corrections is the is the most common outcome uh something like 80 percent of submitted theses will get minor corrections um, no corrections, about 10%, and major corrections or, you know, other potential outcomes like a fail or a award of a lower degree, an MPhil or uh, that sort of thing, that would be, you know, in the single figures. And how do people tend to react to all of the different outcomes that they might uh, achieve? I, I went into my vibe, I remember, uh, hoping for minor corrections is that sort of the right attitude to take would you say i think so i mean if you've if you've prepared the thesis or you know if you've if you've had it read by your supervisors and you've gone through rounds of revision and so on as as should be the case then everyone should feel reasonably confident at the point 
that which it's submitted that this is going to get a pass with no with no major difficulties that's why major corrections or or a fail or a award of a lower degree is is a, is a relatively rare outcome yes um could i ask first what constitutes uh, minor corrections as opposed to say no corrections yeah so minor corrections is typically um it could just be a list of typos, you know, or very minor things like I think you should reference this additional area of literature which you haven't mentioned. Um, if that list of very minor issues becomes, incre- you know, very long and and pervasive throughout the thesis, then potentially that it could in itself swing it towards major corrections because it would require longer than you know, just two months to fix sort of thing. It's like mm. it needs a wholesale rewriting. That could potentially constitute major corrections. The more common um, justification for the request of major corrections is if there are aspects of um, the analysis, i.e. I. the data analysis in STEM, that require um, doing again, and that could potentially alter the interpretation because the results are not known because the analysis hasn't been um, revised. And might that require more data gathering or would it be a question for major corrections of, of reinterpreting the data that you already have? If it required more data to be collected, that would almost invariably constitute a recommendation of major corrections because you can't predict what the outcome of that would be. That would, in fact, probably be the sort of thesis that might be failed and would be, you know, you're asking a student to do more work, substantially more work, and then try again. That that would that would be major corrections but it's typically it's typically you know examiners might not like um the way that the statistical modeling has been done and they feel there's a reasonable chance that it could uh render a result that you think is statistically significant being non-significant or it could be that they think there's more to this story that and your analysis hasn't done it justice and you know you should do it in a different way and that um, almost by definition, is, is is going to result in a recommendation of major corrections. Presumably, the simple fact of there being more that can be done in a given area would not be enough to constitute corrections, though it's more to do with your individual project, right? Yes, absolutely. More, more to be done to properly interpret the outcomes of the you know the results of the mm. questions that you've posed and the results from your studies. It's it's nothing to do with the fact that you may not have covered all the different things you might have done. That's not their role. That you know that's not their role to assess, of course. And how do candidates usually respond if they come out of a viva with major corrections as opposed to say minor corrections? It's usually apparent by the end of the discussion. That, that you know, if if a thesis is going to get a recommendation of major corrections, I think the candidate would come out of the viva pretty much expecting that outcome. It wouldn't typically be a surprise. They'd be told at the end, you know, we're recommending major corrections for the following reasons. Um, but but I think in, because of the, the the nature of the conversation that they've had for the last, you know, whatever it is, two and a half to four hours, then um, yeah, they would they would have a rough idea of what way the wind is blowing by the end of it. And how do people tend to respond to that? Is it sort of disappointment, acceptance, somewhere in between? No, oh, I think in acceptance. I mean, most of us, you know, we some people some people will submit a thesis where they know there are issues. You know, they expect there to be conversation about one or two aspects, so they'll already have an inkling that they're going to be asked to do revisions. Um, it's just a question of how much they're asked to do, and I don't think it's uh, it's not usually a surprise. Some people will hand in a, a a thesis, you know, wishing they'd had an additional two weeks to polish all the little bits which that you know they could otherwise have done and and so they'll be expecting some revisions but it's just down to the 
judgment of the examiners really to decide whether it's whether they want revisions and whether it's it's major or minor. There, there are a couple of other points I'd make. One is that you know if it, a recommendation of no corrections doesn't mean that the the thesis is absolutely polished and there are no typos in it. It, it it's it's at the discretion of the examiners to make a recommendation of no corrections if they feel that it's. I mean, clearly, it's you know it's really top notch work. They just they they don't want to um, burden you with going through and fixing the fact that you missed a full stop on page one hundred and sixteen. You know, it's, that's the sort of thing. So, you, recommendation no correcting doesn't mean there's absolutely nothing wrong. It just means they've taken the view that you've done far and away enough for the award. So just to conclude, could I ask what your advice would be to somebody who comes out of Aviva specifically with uh, major corrections, whether they expected it or otherwise? Well, you know, take a minute to digest what's being asked of you and the scale of the task of you know what you need to do and then confer with your supervisory team and come up with a plan about how you're going to tackle this and the timeline of you know when you're going to achieve this and so on. I think it, it's it's worth it's worth reflecting on the fact that a recommendation of major corrections or minor corrections or, or whatever the recommendation is, it, it is down to the examiners in their judgment to come up with this view. But but that decision is also checked by two other senior experienced academics. It, it's checked by the college director of postgraduate research. So every single examiner's recommendation that gets submitted back to the um, to the PGR administrative team then gets referred to the college director of PGR, so me and Claire's, and I go through and I'm specifically looking to see whether I feel the list of recommendations that they've come up with, oh, sorry, the list the list of um, revisions or amendments that the examiners are requesting um, justifies the um, recommendation that they've, I'm looking for correspondence between the recommendation of major, minor, no corrections and so on, and the revisions are being asked for. And, and I will sometimes challenge the examiners uh, on that and occasionally i'll overturn it but it's usually um it's usually the case that i agree with their recommendation after the college director of pgr has checked that it then gets referred to the dean of the doctoral college as well so two two other people have um have, have checked this and so it, it it should be a sort of a robust recommendation Thank you very much uh, to John Blount there for taking the time to discuss these questions with me. It's certainly been really interesting for me from a predominantly humanities perspective to get a STEM view on these questions of the Viva that would nevertheless hopefully be useful for people from all manner of backgrounds. I hope it is a useful topic to discuss um, if you're preparing for your own Viva yourself. And I also hope that this uh, interview that we had has done double duty effectively as an episode of RD and the in-betweens. Thank you very much uh, to John again, and thanks for joining me. And that's it for this episode. Don't forget to like, rate and subscribe, and join me next time where I'll be talking to somebody else about researchers, development, and everything in between.